You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Dr. Marcella Raimondo. Marcella is a clinical psychologist in Kaiser Permanente's Eating Disorder Clinic in Oakland and an adjunct faculty member at UC Berkeley's Extension Program. She also serves on the advisory board for the Association of Size, Health, and Diversity. In this episode, we discuss Marcella's experience as a daughter of immigrants and how her identities impacted her eating disorder journey. We also discuss the damage of eating disorder stereotypes and the importance of community healing. We cover so much in this episode, and I'm sure you are going to love it. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Hello, Marcella. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Meg. I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here too. I know the audience will learn so much from you today and... I just can't wait for the opportunity to speak with you. So I guess we'll just dive right into it. Diving in is great. (laughs) Okay, great. So my first question for you is, what is your mission as a clinical psychologist who specializes in eating disorders and social justice? Love that question. (laughs) I would say in... A nutshell, like, you know, the elevator pitch, I've got one floor and then that's it. The person's yeah. off is, is just that everybody who suffers from an eating disorder deserves to recover. And everyone deserves to have treatment that is accessible, that aligns with who they are, that supports their recovery so that they can come back to the totality of who they are as a person before their eating disorder. And because that's so focused on the person, it means that, well, we have to look at our entire environment and all the systems of oppression, like diet culture, like white supremacy, like various forms of oppression and how they keep eating disorders intact. And I'm passionate about social justice in that we have, like everyone deserves to recover and everyone deserves to live in an environment that supports their recovery and that supports who they are. And that means a lot of work actually to do in terms of our society and our systems. But I I absolutely hold that. And also just hearing that often people think of eating disorders as these like tiny little here, like a small segment of the population gets them and they're just control freaks and they're just way out there. And I mean, just even our news today in the United States about Roe versus Wade, I mean, these are our bodies. And so eating disorders are intersected with everything from our food to our bodies, to our communities. And so 
everything that happens impacts eating disorders. And so I feel more and more as a psychologist who specializes in eating disorders that I am not here just doing my eating disorder work, but it's just like, what am I doing to make our society inclusive for all bodies? Yeah, it's an elevator pitch, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you're really passionate though, because there's just so much there when it comes to how important it is. And I think the way you answered that really just shows how so many people suffering with eating disorders might not be aware of how the systems of oppression are working against their specific situation. I know when I was going through my eating disorder and I have like thin privilege, I'm heterosexual, I'm white. I didn't realize how much sexism was playing. Just being a woman and the oppression of the beauty standards and all of that had pressured me almost into having an eating disorder. I didn't even see it like that until years later. So I'm just fascinated with how all of those systems can kind of culminate into impacting someone's journey. Yeah. I could see like, like we don't know what we don't know. And many times our privilege keeps us very unaware. I mean, I think of myself and my own journey. I mean, I recovered into a thin body mm-hmm. and there was an ease in that. I mean, I quote unquote, was still able to shop in the same clothes store. I just mm-hmm. move along the uh, rack, so to speak, in terms of sizes. But thinking about when I work with folks and they tell me that I don't want to recover, Marcella, because recovering means I have to recover into a larger body. It means I have to recover into everything changes in my life mm-hmm. and I lose privilege. And in fact, harm comes my way. And I can't deny that. I just can't deny that when I'm in sessions with folks. And so we we hold that space, you know, hold what their recovery means to them, hold in ways that there are legitimate obstacles in their recovery process. And that pains me, that enrages me. It also puts up or creates this kind of like helplessness in me, like, well, what do we do here? And it also, it encourages or ignites a desire to really change things. Yeah. And, you know, things meaning our society, but like things, like big things, you know. Yeah, change those things that are really hard to change. Those systematic issues that seem to be a huge challenge for everyone. And I really connect with that felt hopelessness that you were expressing where when somebody shares the fear of, recovering into a larger body. Cause I know I don't say this cause I know it's not true, but there's a part of me that wants to be like, you'll be safe. You'll be fine. Everything's going to be okay. People are going to love you and treat you well. And, but the reality is that there is a change in many cases on how they're treated and respected in society. Absolutely. And I, I absolutely hear that, you know, your recovery will be embraced. And that's just not true. And for us to realize that as healers doing this work to help folks with eating disorders, realizing that when we know that someone's recovery is not going to be embraced by the larger society, it does make you wonder like, what am I doing here? 
in this arena and in this field. And here we are in this field where we took an oath as clinicians, as healers, do no harm, to help people, and realizing like we can't help people because we live in a bigger society that is just making it impossible. Mm. And that must be really hard to sit with that. And yet there's what actually feels very hopeful to me, because as we talk, I'm sure this can feel very depressing. You're like, oh, what do I do? Is that we also are a collective. I am feeling so much energy to want to push back, to really say, absolutely not. What do we need to do? How do we need to look at food? How do we need to look at affordability, accessibility? How do we need to look at bodies? And so there is a lot of people really raising important questions and really challenging a lot of mainstream medical industries to just all our weight loss industries, even our food industries, and really seeing there's a lot of politics behind that that has nothing to do with health. Mm, so it's an opportunity to be like oh I think we're all being duped here so let's really push back Mm -hmm. that can definitely bring a sense of hope at least bringing someone from maybe a state of feeling powerless to maybe giving them something they can do about it to make sure that the world doesn't continue to hurt people and oppress people who are living in a body size that's not necessarily deemed ideal by diet culture or beauty standards. You know, it definitely does when people feel that it just points to the larger issue that there is so many things that need to be changed and hopefully over time are changed by advocates like yourself and other people in the field. So I know you mentioned before, you kind of pointed out a little about your own personal story. And I was wondering if you could share kind of how you arrived to this point and what your eating disorder story was. And I know that you have several identities that don't fall into the thin, the the white, straight stereotype. So I'd love to hear how that played into your journey as well. Right. When I look at myself and even looking at myself on the Zoom screen, it's like I see a person with many intersecting identities. Like I will tell you that I identify as a queer poly woman of color. And I will also tell you that I have a lot of thin privilege. I'm able-bodied. I have light skin privilege. And so I've been able to navigate the world with my privileges as well. And so wanting to hold both of that. Mm. And yet, I will say that my eating disorder wasn't something you would read in mainstream textbooks. And even to this day, like I give a lot of trainings for mental health interns, and they keep saying, we don't get eating disorders training, or we get this paragraph on the thin, affluent, heterosexual, straight teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is who is portrayed as who gets an eating disorder. And how wrong we have that. It, how absolutely wrong mm-hmm. and the damage and harm that is coming from that. And I will say for myself, you know, my mother immigrated here to this country from Peru. And in her assimilation process, as she was learning the language, dealing with, with racism, she took on a, a anti-fat priority. Mm-hmm. And because for her, 
being thin meant easier assimilation. There were ways that she felt like, one, probably easing the burden of racism and oppression. And two, she was looking at this quote unquote, like Western American life and thinking like, well, then everyone here is thin and really prioritizes thin and thin is how to get in, so to speak. Mm. And so she really adopted that. And that was passed on to me. My father's first generation Italian, and both of them really took on thin is important approach. And yet they are both two people like Italian, Peruvian culture that love food and celebrate mm-hmm. through food. So I would be getting a lot of mixed messages as I was going through puberty of you need to eat our food. And this is respecting our culture and our families and people who come over like we celebrate through food. You, you eat this food. And then was a mixed message of, you're gaining too much weight or, oh, you're getting really big or, wow, you used to be thin and now you're not. And so a lot of messages like that. And so, you know, as a teenager, I didn't know how to make sense of those messages. And it was confusing and conflicting for me. And I felt in ways I had no agency in what I could eat. Also in ways of what my body meant to folks, like I was supposed to take those comments or my body just wasn't my body for it to develop. So with all of that, which was very confusing and also angering as well, I did like, well, then I'm going to step away from all of that because it's too much. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, the easiest way to step away from that is anorexia. Right. I mean, as you talk, or as I'm talking, I think all of us can hear like, yeah, anorexia is probably makes, you know, I'm not saying it's the solution by any means, but it's like, oh yeah, that stepping away through anorexia makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know so many listeners can relate to that no matter what they're going through navigating in life. Oftentimes anorexia was that way where they can step back and numb themselves, hide away, isolate so that they don't have to really face or deal with those maybe confusing or complicated realities. Yeah. And in the beginning, it afforded me the thin privilege and then like comments stopped. And it was also a really odd way of fighting against my culture too. Like somehow anorexia enabled me to like, I don't have to eat the food. I don't have to do any of this. So there was like a fighting back. And, you know, at first, the thin privilege that I was gaining was congratulated before anorexia then just made everything go way downhill more than people were concerned. But I would say like my first year was like, wow, you're good. Wow. And probably some relief from my parents of that, okay, she's thin. Okay, we can breathe a sigh of relief and how that was intersected with the oppression, with the racism, not like I want my daughter to be thin, but I want my daughter to be thin so she can be safe. So that way she could be included so she can fit into this society and also like traditional ways like now she could be thin and she can get married, you know, she'll be attractive. And there was like, there was more meaning to those messages because when I say them, I'm like, well, that sounds really shallow. I'm like, well, when it's tied into fitting in and being included and being valued in society and fear of being ostracized, you can see, and when you intersect that with racism and oppression, you begin to see like, oh, that there's a lot 
to it. And, and that's what I also want to convey, not so much for your audience, but for people who don't get eating disorders, is like eating disorders are not shallow disorders. People who have eating disorders are not shallow and they're not vain and they're not control freaks. Um, people with eating disorders are incredibly flexible, actually. <laughs> you know, and I do a lot of work on boundaries. Like I need you to not be so flexible. I need you to not like wow. too much. I need you to put a stop on this. So let's do some role playing so we can talk about how you're going to say no to this person and or this situation. Mm. Um, so I get really upset when people are like, there must be some control freak. And I was like, no, they're incredibly flexible and incredibly wise and incredibly empathic, sensitive folks. And in fact, mm. they're actually fantastic leaders and they bring in so much folks with eating disorders. So if you could stop for folks and like think really differently about who gets an eating disorder and why, maybe we can get out of this like vanity, shallow kind of thing. Because I often wonder like if they continue to be viewed this way, I don't see a lot of attention and funding going into treatment. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And I'm kind of mind blown sitting here thinking about that very compassionate view that people with eating disorders are actually truly flexible. And the second you talk about like the flexibility around not really having boundaries and absorbing all of the intensity and emotions in the room and caring so much for other people and accommodating other people, like I can see how one could really see, uh, (laughs) I could see how people with eating disorders are also very flexible. And would you say that's why so many turn to that rigidity around food? I know some eating disorders aren't necessarily rigid all the time, but for those who have an eating disorder that becomes rigid, do you think it's potentially a balance there of like, I've been just overcome by everything else and I need to keep my food very controlled? Absolutely. I mean, it's obviously you and I are talking like it's a very oversimplified way, but it is absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a way that the food becomes that mechanism of control and the food also becomes that mechanism of coping. Because for a number of folks whom I work with with binge eating, as I'm hearing about their lives and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to navigate what I hear loud and clear is like binge eating is the only thing that helps me manage my life. Mm -hmm. I don't want to binge eat, but it is helping. And so when I work with folks with binge eating, yes, they want to be able to manage their binge eating, of course, but I know I can't come in with all these coping skills until we look at their life and say, okay, how are you going to be able to tolerate your life more Uh, And I'm not saying tolerate hate and I'm not saying tolerate oppression, but we need to start with some degree of tolerance so that we can start to work on your life because our goal is to have you have a meaningful life. And when your life starts to get better, the binge eating actually starts to decrease. Mm. But until we do that work, then they tell me like, Nothing copes the way binge eating copes. I hear you on that. They're like, I could take a million baths and go on a walk and smell all kinds of incense and all to ways to kind of distract. 
but it's not the same. I'm like, yes. Wow. Yeah. I, I absolutely hear that. I've been shouting this message from the top of rooftops. Right. Three weeks straight. Like this keeps right. coming up for right. the conversations I'm having. And it's just so interesting because I think there is this mixed message or incorrect message that coping will replace the high of whatever behavior you're using, right? right? It makes feeling the emotions more tolerable, right? Like you can maybe do that better. So I'm really glad you pointed that out. And I think the most striking comment you made there was you shouldn't be tolerating hate. And I feel like that's where you were bringing up your own story of at least your mom was utilizing her dieting and thinness to fit in and potentially avoid racism and assimilate better into the community. Would you say that was fueling your eating disorder as well? Yeah, there's a lot to say with that, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go there if you don't want to. Oh, we can. Totally. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that mentality thin will help you fit in, right? Especially being in a family of immigrants and coming into the country, trying to fit in. What was going through your head during that time specifically related to that and your eating disorder? I'm just very curious to know. Well, I mean, sadly, I was also going through the same exact thing. It wasn't like I was this social justice aware, you know, 14 year old that could be like, Hey, that's just mainstream Western white supremacist, like notions, diet culture is all fucked up. I was like, I was buying into it just as much, Mm -hmm. just as much. I mean, I was confused as well because I didn't understand the, how can you say I'm getting too big and then tell me I have to eat all the food. Like that part of the disconnect, that part was just confusing to me, but I didn't have the insight to say like, whoa, 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 this is racism or this is diet culture intersected in in racism. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that wisdom, so to speak, with that insight until I was in my mid twenties and I was reading Becky Thompson's book, A Hunger So Wide and So Deep and seeing all these women of color share that experience. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away, like blown away reading that book. I remember just even a few times I had to like close the book. I was so upset or I had to come back and cry or I was enraged and I took the book and I threw it across the room. I was so upset, but I was, you know, came back to the book and read it because I was like, what? I wasn't all in my head. I wasn't some deranged person who had no idea, just this incompetent deranged person that that had like absolutely no idea what I was thinking, or I was like mentally flawed in some ways. So it was very validating to get the book or to get the book, to read it, to to really see that. But it wasn't until much, much later, like in my twenties. And then later in life, like just really seeing that degree of thinness or immigration and thinness and how that is valued and seen as a Mm -hmm. like protecting against racism. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an an activist, Sonali Rashatoir, who like, you know, she came up with this quote about our immigrant parents took on anti-fatness to assimilate. I have seen that. I mean, I, I remember working with one young woman and she was in a large body and I was working with her through her physician residency. 
and her parents were immigrants. And she would tell me how much focus her parents put on her to lose weight. Like they would ground her, you know, she wouldn't be allowed to go to parties or slumber parties or to the mall with her friends when she was a kid because she didn't lose weight. There was so much emphasis on her about her needing to lose weight to the point where she told me, she goes, I hate salads and I hate running because it was punishment for me. But she's like, but I want to like a salad every once in a while. I want to like exercise. Why not? Because she goes, but I have so much anger towards anything related to produce and exercise. And so she's sharing all of this with me and this way that her parents just took on so much anti-fatness with her and, and punished her. And I was like, well, wait a minute. You're also a doctor. Like You have MD behind your name, right? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, so on some level, aren't you living like this, like immigrant parents, American dream? My kid's a doctor. Yeah. And are they proud of you for, for that? And she was like, yeah, but the thinness factor still eclipses the MD behind my name. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my God, you worked so hard. And yet the fact that you're not thin means nothing. I was like, wow. That makes me really sad to hear just because. Right. And it just shows how anti-fatness was taken on in her family to keep her safe. I know that are very important, especially to older generations. So it's such a unique story to hear. One thing I am really curious about that you're mentioning here Because I don't see too, well, I know there are people out there who talk about their eating disorders and they live with marginalized identities, but I've also heard that there's a lot of stigma that exists within these communities about eating disorders. And I'm just wondering how that impacts one's journey. Because of course you mentioned the love for food and like feeling shame that you're not going to be able to eat the cultural foods and and all of that. Yeah, inside those communities, what does the stigma look like? And what is that like for someone going through an eating disorder? It's horrible. It's super hard. That's why like the stereotype of who gets an eating disorder It's just so damaging. And I think it's just like a completely damaging stereotype. I do not see anything helpful about it. I mean, I'll focus very briefly on even to, let's say, the thin, white, heterosexual, affluent teenage girl that that gets an an eating disorder. You would think like, oh, well, she benefits because that's who the stereotype is about. And it's like, not really because of the way this person is seen as a very fragile person and the way her eating disorder is minimized to vanity and control. So I'm like, I'm not sure that's helpful or holistic in any way. I mean, the advantage is that this person, the stereotype does access treatment because of being privileged and having treatment developed for a thin, white, affluent teenage girl. So that is a benefit or that is a way that the stereotype works. And so I'm just holding that very one small piece because the more bigger problem and big and massive injustice is for those who don't fit the stereotype and how folks in marginalized bodies, like their eating disorder is not taken seriously at all. 
at all. And I've worked with folks who have relayed their symptoms to other healthcare providers and just not being really questioned or not taken seriously. And these are folks who share, like, they are actually engaging in some pretty heavy duty eating disorder behavior. I don't want to name them because I want to be sensitive in terms of like the behaviors I name, but I mean, we're talking very heavy duty eating disorder behaviors and still not being taken seriously. Or even at some point having so many of my folks in marginalized bodies have been told by one clinician or another, like, well, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. I mean, just like being so stuck on the stereotype. What's also hard, and I've heard this from the folks who I work with, is that families and close ones don't take their eating disorder seriously. And, you know, I've had a couple of patients, you know, their families would say, just, I'm sorry. When I think of an eating disorder, I think of some, they said like, some thin white girl. I wasn't thinking of you. And even saying, and I've witnessed you doing behaviors. I just didn't think it was an actual eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And I've had folks even question their own eating disorder. Like, I just didn't think I could have one. Like, I'm not white enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not straight enough. I'm I'm not neurotypical. I mean, just all the ways folks in marginalized bodies look at themselves and, well, I couldn't have one because of my marginalized identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that just starts to have a, a ripple effect of, like, people around them not taking them seriously And then our society as a a whole just um, still really focus on folks on the stereotype who gets an eating disorder. And because of that, then research and prevention and treatment are all geared accordingly. Mm -hmm. And so then that continues to reinforce who gets an eating disorder by seriously outcasting folks who don't fit that stereotype because you can't access treatment. Mm -hmm. And then for folks that do decide or have enough privilege, let's say, to come to treatment, they're not feeling very seen, not very validated. Many times they will leave treatment and it's often seen like, well, they weren't ready for it. And it's like, well, well, no, it's because treatment wasn't inclusive. It's too easy to blame a person with a needing disorder. They're like, I guess they weren't ready for recovery. It's like, we're not making recovery welcome and possible and sustainable if we keep our treatment very much exactly as is. And it's also in general, like, I don't know who can really afford treatment for eating disorders. They're so expensive. I got that all the time. It's so expensive. And even those who don't go to like a residential center or anything, but they're you know, or intensive outpatient, maybe they're just piecing together an outpatient team that adds up so fast. So it is, yeah, it's really ridiculous how expensive it can get for sure. But yeah, you really did outline, I guess, a lot of how that stereotype can really damage and can be damaging to an individual who lives in a marginalized Mm -hmm. body, right? With an eating disorder. And what would you say, like, as far as treatment goes, what can be done to make treatment more inclusive, more validating for folks who do not fit that thin white affluent stereotype? Asking this question in a time when we're questioning a lot of things and we are questioning big things. And I'm happy that 
or questioning big things. Because I used to say things like, well, make sure you include pronouns in the intake forms kind of thing. And sure, yeah, do that. Yet, really having to take a step back and, and feel like we need to be having some big conversations with a lot of people just about healthcare in general. Mm-hmm. We need to be putting tons and tons of money because we can and we have the money into healthcare. Where I live, I see a lot of community clinics uh, and I see a lot of community clinics that folks feel very aligned to in terms of I see a lot of trans clinics. I see a lot of LGBTQ clinics. I see a lot of clinics geared for Asian folks. I see a lot of clinics geared for Latinx folks and et cetera, et cetera. And these are places where people feel like that's my community. And then I have given trainings to on eating disorders to those clinics. And I've been told like, we don't have anything for what you are talking about, Marcella. Like, I get it. Like, we need to have a physician or a nurse on board. We need to have a dietitian on board. We, we need to train our therapists. But like, we see folks for like 10 sessions, you know, like that's all the money. Like we're, we're so short staffed. And so it's like, we need to fuel and put resources into all these community clinics. Because many times these community clinics also, they have a, a mental health arm. And so there are seeing folks with mental health conditions, but we don't see eating disorders. And they admit like, but we know we're not asking the right questions. We And we know we don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. And so like, we're not able to like kind of dig deeper and not because folks are like, I don't want to, but some folks are like, we don't have the resources. I don't have the training and I don't know what to do. And folks with eating disorders, like they may be coming in, they may not, or may they may be disclosing their eating disorder. They might not be. And so it, it is going to take a lot more resources. And where I'm trying to do more work is really challenge a lot of graduate school programs to have eating disorders in your curriculums. And many times like, well, we have this one lecture that you did. And I was like, well, great. Okay. You know, but why not more? Because all your students are going to see someone with an eating disorder. I guarantee you. I absolutely guarantee you. And we're not seeing like the numbers that we see don't represent who has an, an eating disorder. So yeah. I mean, there's a lot of suffering out there. When you have yeah. a, a disharmonious relationship with food and your body, you're in pain. You just are. And so it really does make me go back to like, didn't we take an oath of like how we're going to serve folks and our communities? And isn't this what healthcare is about? And there's this tremendous focus on putting people on diet so that they can lose weight. And it's like, we're not getting this right. We're just continuing to perpetuate harm. I mean, I'm all for like building resources and bringing in farms and making food accessible and finding ways to build parks that way people can be together and engage in an activity that is connecting. And some of it may be physical. Some of it may just be sitting on a park bench and being together. But I want to see more of that and glad like there are programs that are trying to do that, even if the agenda is weight loss. I'm like, you know, if you could take that agenda out and do that for the sake of community building, that would really be far better than 
and doing this for the sake of weight loss. Mm -hmm. While you were speaking, I just had so many thoughts coming up because I actually used to work in a community mental health clinic Mm -hmm. and they do so much amazing work in the community. But whenever an eating disorder was brought up, they wouldn't directly treat the eating disorder because insurance wouldn't honor that diagnosis. And so it was like they had to find a primary diagnosis that wasn't the eating disorder to prove that this person actually needed help because in insurance eyes, eating disorders are still just like diets in a, like extreme dieting or something that's invalid experience. Not maybe I'm speaking incorrectly, but I just got the sense that eating disorders were heavily misunderstood and not validated. And so these places couldn't really help others. And then I also, there was one other layer, which was eating disorders are also impacting the physical body. And as a mental health facility, we're afraid to treat people. And that seems more like a medical issue because there's the food and the physical side effects involved. And I don't know if you see that as well. Yes. And that folks don't want to treat eating disorders because of what it requires. It does require a medical component. Absolutely. And it does require a dietary component. Yes. Mm -hmm. There are ways that eating disorders involve resources. Of course they do. And so I can see where folks don't or feel like I don't have the means to do it. I don't want to say don't want to, because it implies I folks don't care, but I think we just don't have the means. Yeah. The means. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think so many people who work in these fields come, you come into this field with your heart in the right place to really take care of people and do what you can to serve your community. But if resources are limited, it limits your ability to do that. So, mm. well, this hour has gone by really quickly. It has. (laughs) It really has. Um, Marcella, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Um, Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. It, It was my pleasure. And for everyone listening, could you please share how people might be able to reach you if they're feel inspired to check out your work? Uh, Yes, Uh, you can go to my website at www.marcellaedtraining.com. I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Marcella Raimondo. And there's going to be more coming out from me in the next few months as far as like being on social media and on my website. So stay tuned. But yeah, those are ways to, to reach me. Awesome. Well, Marcella, thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Meg. 